Let's get into it then. All right. Awesome sauce. I ask that the gods and goddesses of our respective paths bless this circle so that we may be free and protected within this space. And if you have this one word, pagan or paganism. For the pagan community. Exactly. Right. The, the big umbrella. And that was fucking fantastic. Of the podcast ever. We're three pagans. Exactly. We're three pagans. And a cat. And may the works this day of be of the highest good for all present and those listening. So mote it be. The circle is cast. Hail Dictinus, grant us clear voices, strong sound, and good reads. All events and experiences are local somewhere, and all human enhancements of events and experiences, all the arts, are regional in the sense that they derive from immediate relation to felt life. Welcome to Your Own Backyard, 167th episode of Three Pagans and a Cat. Our opening today is courtesy of poet William Stafford. Thanks to Velocity Rose for our intro music. You can find more of their work at VelocityRose.com. You may call me Ode. You can call me Carr. I'm Ode's father. Mary Meet. My name is Gwyn Ode's mother. And I got nothing witty to say. <laughs> I was going to say, I look at you because often you have some kind of comment. I know, but <laughs> I'm, I'm honestly got nothing. Fair I, enough. I'm blank. Fair enough. Start with housekeeping. I got nothing. <laughs> we have one new hunter, Patrick the Mythic Stitcher. Oh, that's a great name. Say. And welcome. Welcome, Patrick, the welcome. Mythic Stitcher. I hope you liked our, our uh, episode on... Fabric craft. Yeah, textile magics. Textile magic. Yeah. Anything else for housekeeping? That's as far as I know, that's it. Okay, well, we love all of our patrons and all of our listeners. And I don't think we really have anything coming up other than no. holidays. Yeah. Work and holidays. Yep. And then... We, we- will be at... Convocation. Yes, in February. In February. Um, we do not know yet whether we are speaking. Right. But we will right. definitely be there because I've already reserved the freaking hotel. Exactly. Yes. We'll be present. We will yes. be present. <laughs> we'll be able to raise our hands and say we're there. And yeah. we'll be happy either way. Oh, Wynn and I are doing on November 27th. Yes, that's right. We're doing a event at Arts and Crafts, or we're, being, we're part of an event at Arts and Crafts, a divination event. That's right. It is a psychic fair mm-hmm. held at Arts and Crafts in Hartford, Michigan. And it is that Saturday after Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So what is that? November 27th. And I believe it's from noon to five. So yeah. if you're in the area, do feel free to stop in and get yourself a reading. There's going to be other readers besides yep. just me and... Yep. Code, and there may be some vendors. And I Sometimes there are, yeah. And I understand there's going to be maybe a dessert truck. I don't know. Mm. Pat's got plants. Pat has plants. And if nothing else, you can always shop at Arts and Craft. That's right, because Arts and Craft is the largest. I'll probably shop while I'm there. <laughs> the largest occult store in West Michigan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in the Midwest. Uh, in Midwest, the Midwest. Yeah. yeah. And it's a wonderful place to visit, and it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful place in the neighborhood? Yep, it is. <laughs> is it a wonderful place to be a neighbor? It, I think so, I yes. I think so, yes. Are they ours? Not anymore. Not anymore, technically speaking. Technically. <laughs> it's a little bit of a drive to get to Arts and Crafts now, but not nearly but as But there, there are neighbors in our hearts, before. which is what really counts That's with right. the Fred Rogers spirit. Right, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's right. And we love Arts and Crafts. We love Pat and Paul. Mm-hmm. And we are looking forward to doing that psychic fair mm-hmm. and it'll be good we've done oh, not we've to done mention sm- it's you know small business, saturday, small business saturday so you want to come just to support the small business that is arts and crafts but i think that's it for housekeeping yeah that's it for housekeeping okay yeah. and we are housekept and yeah. house swept perfect we're gonna be talking about a concept that's sort of a movement but it's not like a movement 
it's sort of decentralized, called regional witchcraft or magical regionalism, which is a policy that some mostly witches, but also some reconstructionist pagans and, and people in that milieu have taken up to focus less on how they did it in the old country, as it right. were, and more on how to adapt your practices, your magic, your faith, your your way of interacting with the magical systems of the world to your specific environment, to your local area. Mm-hmm. Getting um, to know your city spirits, your your land spirits, mm-hmm. how how the maybe the deities work in your area mm-hmm. rather than just the larger deities of witchcraft and paganism. Right. It's sort of an interesting reaction, I think, to universalism. Mm-hmm. So there's this tendency, and I think this is partly a function of the internet and like the way that pagan publishing has worked and that kind of thing, but there's a tendency to sort of generalize so that your information hits as wide a swath as possible mm-hmm. so that it's like applicable to as many people as it can be, mm-hmm. especially with like traditional publishing, like through Llewellyn and stuff, like the majority of their books are intended for to hit sort of the whole pagan audience. Right. A very wide market. But as a result, you get these sort of, I don't know how to describe it, these characterless like lists of correspondences right the and associations idea, it's kind of like the idea of well it would be soft i guess soft polytheism or the idea call on one of the hindu deities without even call on kali very call on kali is very because they saw her in a list somewhere right, because they saw her in a list and she would be good for creation or destruction mm-hmm. or you know all these different things and so they, they invoke her into a ritual without necessarily knowing her or her history or the type of relationship he has, she has with her origins. Right. And that's, and that's an appropriation issue. Yeah, it, that's what I was thinking was appropriation and dangerous. Yeah. But I think there's, I think some of the impulse for that, some of the reason people want to, to do that mm-hmm. is that they feel like there's... So I think there's two levels to it, one of which is more problematic than the other. Mm -hmm. So I think the less problematic level is feeling like because those deities are very old and they have very established histories, Mm -hmm. even in in cultures that you have no relationship to, they feel powerful. Right. Right. And a lot of people come to witchcraft and even to paganism because Mm -hmm. they're looking to feel powerful in their own lives. Right. So I think that's the... That's one layer of it. Mm-hmm. But the other layer, which is way more problematic and more associated with that appropriation issue, mm-hmm. is that they feel exotic. What I was thinking of was like these Goddess a Day books, because those that's kind of popular. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, those, yeah. Those you know, like, which those always remind me of those um, those devotionals you do. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. It's kind of a, a devotional, and it gives you basic information about a goddess potentially a ritual or a prayer to say to the goddess. And it doesn't really mean, it doesn't really establish a relationship necessarily with that goddess. It's just like, hey, if you need to solve this problem, tap on this, you know, this, energy, deity. this deity to help you out. It's kind of the feeling that I get from and those I've, kind of of systems. And you you had one of those books for a while, and I remember looking through it. I have one, and I still have it downstairs. Yeah, and I remember looking through it, and like the rituals they suggested for mm-hmm. these different goddesses mm-hmm. All sort of felt the same. Yeah. Very generic. 
Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, it's a and it's a very basic, just a, a tiny little introduction yeah. to give you an idea of what you could approach this goddess about. But again, I think it's that very universalized, mm-hmm. watered down version. Yes. Rather than experiencing the fullness of the deity, even aside from mm-hmm. engaging with that deity in, a, in the appropriate religious context, right, right. the appropriate cultural framework. Mm-hmm. I think part of it is, too, is like that's kind of the way Wicca started. I, they, they had a generalized lady and lord, a generalized goddess and yeah. god. Right, and so this and it was stuff, supposed to be generalizable right. and applicable to everyone, everywhere. Right, and individual Wiccans would, you know, be drawn to, you know, whatever deities they were drawn to. But I feel like I don't know, I don't know. So I think something was lost somewhere. I think it was, to a certain extent, intentional, and I think this goes back even further mm-hmm. than Wicca to the occult societies like the Golden Dawn yeah, that were we about that were week. using bad watered down Egyptology, right? And stolen, misinterpreted Kabla and mm-hmm. mishmashes right. of things they didn't understand right. and had recontextualized as these very general topics. I mean, I think it's different. Like if you are drawn to a particular deity and you get to know that deity and build a relationship with them, even if you're, you know, like I'm not Greek, but yet I'm drawn to work with Hakati and have developed a relationship with her. But I think that's different than what goes on with these goddess of day type of scenarios. Yeah. I'm not saying like you can never work with a deity outside of like, I'm definitely not doing the folkish thing of like, yeah, yeah. you should only work with deities from, from your traditions culture. you're genetically related to. Exactly. That's some bullshit nonsense. It's always been bullshit nonsense. It continues to be bullshit nonsense. Right. Yeah. I mean, they've heard us say that before, but I wanted to reiterate that. Yeah. So yes, I do think it's possible to build a authentic, lived, spiritually fulfilling relationship with a mm-hmm. deity from a, a pantheon mm-hmm that you have no connection to, right? right? But the process of building that relationship right. is going to involve building that connection because right. you're going to study their lore and their history and the context they come from. And mm-hmm. that's all like, that's all part of building a relationship right. with that deity. So what we're talking about is the, the antithesis of that movement, right? right? right. The universalism is that just sort of ev- right. everything to everyone, right. right? Is that, and you see this a lot, even outside of deities, you see this a lot with, correspondence lists mm-hmm. that are super generalized, mm-hmm. but at the same time are just functionless in certain cultures. Right. Like you see whitelisted for purity in probably three quarters of correspondence lists, but that's going to make no fucking sense to someone who's in Japan. Hindu, I think white is, is it, they, the, the yeah, colors of red. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, exactly. So the colors have completely different <laughs> meanings, very different meanings. So trying to do that sort of generalizing a doesn't work and B waters down mm-hmm. the, the utility of things. So you get right. these books. We have some of them. We oh, have yeah. some of those books of enormous lists of correspondences. Yep. Yep. And I'm not saying, they're not useful as jumping off points. They right. certainly can be useful as jumping off points. Like if you just have no sense for for your vibe on this right. plant or whatever. Right. But they're absolutely not as cut be all exactly as cut and dry as be all end all as people think they are. Well, like they're not as authoritative right. as well, people treat them. You got to remember though that Llewellyn primarily publishes for a North American audience. Mm-hmm. Right. So their writings, most of their writings that they release 
are for a North American audience. In particular, a white, middle-class North American audience. Right. And an audience that is beginning their journey. They have got a lot of one-on-one yeah. books. Yeah. That's true. Yep. That's true. And so the, I think that's why you get correspondence books that are very generalized. Right. You know, and, but people never get to that point of getting beyond the basic information and using their intuition or their experience or whatever to or their local or, or, their local or buying buying books from publishers in Europe where they have right. centuries of right. tradition to go on. Yeah. Right. So if you read something from like uh Serena Diest, mm -hmm. you get a whole lot more and different information right. on Hakati, for instance, than you would from Cindy Brannon. Cindy Brannon. Right. Yeah. So they're two entirely different kinds of schools on it because one's written from an American's perspective, mm -hmm. which quite honestly, we're just not that old. Right. Right. <laughs> of a nation. Right? right. And you get one written by, by a British person's mm -hmm. uh, perspective. perspective who have been around for fucking ever. Well, and that's like like, you know, speaking as a as a green earth witch who, you know, I work with plants. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I have a much stronger relationship with especially as I learned to grow, learn to start learning to forage and, you know, learning what's in my wild local, wildcrafting, yeah. learning what's in my local area, learning what's just in my own yard. Yeah, we have so much and, shit in our yard. And working with those plants and those plant spirits. And, or when we went with Shadow Bear and mm -hmm. we went on that tour of the woods and we were working with different, you know, getting mm -hmm. to know different plants and things like that. Um, you know, that's getting to know your local flora. Right. right. And and by doing that, you discover different correspondences than what you might find in a book. It's the same thing with stones, with animals. What is, you know, with your with your genius loci, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, but you have to get out there and experience it in order to be able to work with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that's hard to you can't publish a book on it. Yeah, because it's going to be so specific to your like little territory, right? You could do a zine mm -hmm. or something and publish it in your local area, right? But it wouldn't make sense for Llewellyn to publish a book on like the specific folkways of Western Michigan, right? Exactly. Speaking of folkways, Byron Ballard, she wrote a mm -hmm. book on Appalachian folk magic because mm -hmm. she was raised in the Appalachians. She is trying to remind people about what folk magic, what the lore of her particular area was like and remains to this day. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's handed down. And I think that's part of it, too. And it's all very much based in its local it's, area. It's, it's specific, local folklore. It's specific to your environment, to your city. Mm -hmm. We've talked with, I think this was a conversation we had with Kenya about yes. how D Detroit witches yeah. have a specific Detroit witch yeah. style. It has a different flavor. And it's not something she's going to just share with anybody, you yeah. know, because it's particular. It only makes sense in Detroit. Yeah, it's particular to their area, to their witchcraft, to the spirits and, and the things that they use in their area. Mm -hmm. Not just with witchcraft, but with paganism, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's an impulse for a lot of us, especially for white middle class, a lot of us, to want to go to more ancient traditions mm -hmm. instead of focusing on the traditions that literally already exist here, yeah. but we don't think of as being folkways or traditions. Yeah. 
right? Like all the little superstitions your grandma had Mm -hmm. and how your auntie handles a a shitty ex, right? Mm -hmm. And like you have this stuff in your family, in your local neighborhood Mm -hmm. that's just, people don't think of it as magic. Okay, let let me, like, let's go back to the Appalachian because I have a couple of examples, right? So, but for instance, if you wanted to remove a wart, you would steal a neighbor's wash rag wipe it all over the wart and then go bury it off property somewhere. And then as that disintegrated, your warts would be cured, mm-hmm. right? That is something that was, that was very local mm-hmm. to, to the area. That is a form of magic, you know, that, that was brought up through, through folklore, through traditions, through grannies, mm-hmm. you know, home remedies. Kind that's of, the kind of stuff it is. That's the kind of stuff it is. It sounds ridiculous to, you know, some people to say, why would I do that? But that's because it's not in your culture. It's not right? in your culture. You have stuff in your culture that makes sense to you. Exactly. But you don't think of as magic because it's just like how you do things. Mm-hmm. When you told me what the thing was mm-hmm. today, I started looking at what was magic like where we live, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kalamazoo. What but it they? was all Hopewell Indian tribes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I quit looking because right. I was like, there's not. That's not what I mean, I'm looking was, for. Right. Yeah. It was 1870s when whites came. So mm-hmm. it's not been that long ago. Right. There's just not that much to go on. So I think for, and this is tricky because as white Americans, we're colonizers. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So we're, we're doing this in a colonizer perspective and we do have to be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you definitely don't want to steal native folkways and native traditions from your right. from your area, right? That's closed stuff. And like I said, this is complicated, but a lot of our ancestors, when they came here as colonizers, mm-hmm. they brought shit with them mm-hmm. from where they came from, from Germany, from mm-hmm. Scandinavia, from England, from France, from Spain, right. from wherever. And that stuff got stuck in and mixed up with and adapted and has grown into what are now the local folkways. Exactly. Like with, again, I'm going to reference the Appalachian folk magic because I've always been fascinated by Appalachian folk magic. Yes, actually we have. We have had we? friends who lived. You were just a tiny thing. Oh, I don't remember but We this. had friends who lived in the Appalachians. Yeah. We were in North Carolina. Yep. Oh, I don't in remember Boone. that. Yep. In oh, Boone. Boone. Yeah. That's where you uh-huh. left Beanie. That's right. That's right. You left, you left a blanket. I lost a yep. blanket in Boone. <laughs> That's right. But like, for instance, uh, again, this particular uh, author that I was reading about in an article mentioned the sin eater mm-hmm. of the Appalachians. The idea, the concept behind the sin eater, because you got to realize a lot of these systems are folk magic, folklore that are taken from Irish, Scottish, German, mm-hmm. English sources and kind of mishmashed together and Christianity's in there and, yep. and whatever they came up with while they were colonizing or the mountain folk have what's called a sin eater. And what it is is uh, an individual who come is invited to come basically where someone has been laid, you know, someone has died mm. and um, that person would come all dressed in black and they would eat a meal that has been placed on top of that corpse. Okay. Uh, and that absolved the the person the, hmm. the person who had died, it absolved them from their sin. And that as the person was eating the food, they were taking their sin into themselves. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know how the concept of sin eaters came about. How it evolved. How it evolved. I don't know. But the, it's very much a magical kind of thing where they take it mm-hmm. into themselves. Who knows why someone thought that that was a necessary part 
I'm sure it's a combination you know? of multiple cultures mm-hmm. combining yeah. and the cauldron of the Appalachian Hills. Yeah. yeah, basically, basically. So that, and that's what you see in like Louisiana, uh, hoodoo and voodoo. It was, it began with the West African slaves that were brought, mm-hmm. you know, combining with Catholicism and with uh, some native practices. And with some native practices. It all became its own thing. This is a tricky thing about appropriation. After a certain point, it becomes like it's impossible to to disentangle where those traditions came from and who owns them. Mm-hmm. Like Hoodoo and, and Appalachian folkways are such they're complete. They've become a complete their own entity, basically. Yeah, and it's 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 extremely difficult and complicated to sort out where those things came from and who they belonged to in the past and who they belong to now. Mm-hmm. But I think something that's important to remember about appropriation, white people have used appropriation outside of the context it was originally intended for. The subject of appropriation was something black scholars were talking about, about how to engage with scholarship and academia in contexts where their lives and traditions and cultures had been devalued or stolen or misinterpreted. Right. Trying to apply that framework to religion is super complex. I think an important thing to remember about appropriation is that you're going to fuck it up. That one Native person or that one Black person or that one Mexican person that you know telling you it's okay or not okay to do X doesn't mean that you have universal authority or denial to do that thing. Basically... Do a whole shit ton of shadow work is all I can tell you about appropriation. Mm-hmm. And and don't take things that are explicitly closed to you. How do you tell what's appropriation and what's appreciation? So my understanding of it, and obviously I'm not an authority on this, my understanding of the difference is that appropriation is taking a cultural element out of its cultural context and using it for your own gratification. Especially if you also deny the use of that cultural object to the people it belongs to. So, like, there's a long history in America, at least, of white people with dreads. Right. While black people can't have dreads. Right. While, like, a white person with dreads is seen as, like, cool and countercultural. And a black person with dreads is seen as dirty and, and gross. Right. Right. And that's a pretty unambiguous case of appropriation because dreads are a black people cultural thing. Right. And also it's just something their hair does. Whereas white people have to work a lot harder to make dreads. Right. Appreciation is engaging with elements of a culture that you have been invited to engage with or that are open for engagement. Mm -hmm. So like when you go to a powwow that the tribe is putting on, they're inviting people in to participate in these cultural aspects. Right. To understand their culture so, and, mm-hmm. and their, what they're doing. So can the same thing be appropriation for one person, but appreciation for another? Probably. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it depends. Yeah. It's, it's, it depends on the individual context. It gets tricky, really. I mean, because like with Louisiana voodoo, it, it originated with the, with the slaves mm-hmm. and it got mishmashed with a bunch of other things. Mm-hmm. It, it gave us people like Marie Laveau. Mm-hmm. The historical records tell us about 
the prominent deities that they that they worshipped at the time. Local spirits and, and ghosts and stuff were a part of it, and it was very ancestral mm-hmm. type of thing. But it actually, that original Louisiana voodoo mm-hmm. actually died out at the early part of the 20th century, and it was then later revived mm-hmm. in a different format, I guess, or a different way in the late 20th century. It was kind of revived and brought back. Mm-hmm. But you would you find that a lot of apparently a lot of people in as it was being revived, it, you you find a lot of white folk are mm-hmm. are really drawn, you know, to voodoo as well as black folk and people of various colors and ethnicities and, and, ethnicities and things like that. So it gets to the point, I guess it's like, you know, I'm not gonna tell someone who is not of African American descent that they can't practice no, but Garland's voodoo. But it know? is an initiatory practice, is my understanding. So, so the the temple decides if you can yeah. right. be yeah. an, an, a voodoo initiate. Right, and hoodoo is a more, I believe, a more open practice. And apparently, hoodoo originates from some of the the kept some of the practices from the original Louisiana mm-hmm. voodoo, and it formed into hoodoo. Th- this whole thing just seems like a huge sticky wicket. Yeah, um, it absolutely it is. is. It's a uh, but no, yeah, I like it absolutely is just a whole hot mess and we're not going to solve appropriation no. here on this podcast. <laughs> if you are drawn to something and you're doing it because and you're studying it and you approach it with the proper context and things of, of Here's that my nature, thing. I generally speaking agree with that, mm-hmm. but I do think you need to not do that research on your own. I think you need to reach out to someone from that culture, right? not get their permission because that's meaningless. You need to actually engage with it in the context that is appropriate for that culture with a teacher from that culture. Mm-hmm. Like like I was saying, I think Appalachian folk magic is fascinating. You know, Byron Ballard has written a really beautiful book that honors what those folk traditions are and things like that. I don't necessarily feel like, though, that I it would be appropriate for me to, right. to pick up Appalachian folk magic because it really is based in the lore and the land and the people mm-hmm. of that area. Yeah. Right. It's very specific it's very to that specific space. It's very specific to that space. Yeah. And uh, unless I went to Byron or, or some other practitioner mm-hmm. and said, would you be willing to teach me? You know, I wouldn't want to just do it on my own, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And I think even if you went to Byron Ballard and were like, teach me Appalachian folkways, mm-hmm. I think even if she taught them to you, it would you be would different. Be, if you brought them back to West Michigan, you wouldn't be doing Appalachian folkways. You'd be doing West Michigan folkways inspired by Appalachian folkways. Yeah, basically. <laughs> basically. So I want to I want to go back to the dreads thing real quick, and then we can move on from this. Okay. I have two really good friends. Mm-hmm. You know both of them, David and Noah, mm-hmm. who both have very long dreads and are both very white. Yep. Who decides that it's cultural appropriation or it's appreciation? The person who has them or the ethnic group that they're mirroring? Or society at large. There's not like a pass-fail for appropriation. Right. Like there's no one giving a grade on appropriation. There's not like a central appropriation authority. So no one decides. Mm-hmm. That's the part that sucks. Right. So I mean, so that yeah. so so that's that's the hard thing. Like, like if I had to guess, mm-hmm. I would say Noah's probably more appropriation and David's more probably more appreciation. But part of that is David's married to a black woman. Mm-hmm. And has a kid who is of mixed race Mm -hmm. and, you know, happens to live in an area that is very Mm African-American where Noah lives in East Tennessee, you know, (laughs) uh, or in Nashville to be exact. But and, 
you know, is, is from like Oklahoma, like, right. you know, very, very white areas. So it, it kind of reminds me of the, of the girls who go around wearing a, a jeweled bindi, which is always appropriation, which is hundred percent of the you know, time. Kind of right. like your friend from Nashville, you know, it's like, it looks cool. Quote yeah. Unquote. Right. If you're doing it because it looks cool, I, that's probably appropriation. <laughs> or you just like it because you think it's cool. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. And especially, and I think especially when the rest of society doesn't accommodate the people from that actual culture trying to do the thing. Right. right. Now, I think dreads have become more culturally appropriate for... In certain contexts, For yeah. just about everybody now. And that could be because white people started doing it. And then it became more of a thing. It could be, but I still read articles pretty regularly about black mm-hmm. people at work being forced to remove their dreads. Because, or kids in high school. Yeah, because it's it's seen as dirty. Mm-hmm. Fucking idiots. Yeah. Anyway, so, not, not those people, but the people telling them. Yeah, the, yeah. the anyway. administrations and yeah. the bosses uh-huh. and yeah. stuff. Join our Tiger Crystal at Apothecary Tees. This shop produces fragrant, aesthetically beautiful teas that delight all the senses. With handcrafted tea blends from white to red to green, this week Ode recommends Autumn Spice Blend with flavors of cinnamon, orange peel, and clove. Find them at apothecaryteastore.com or on Facebook at Apothecary Teas, LLC. Excellent read. Hail Dictinus. Light something on fire. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we hail Dictinus in this That's house. That's how we hail Dictinus in this house. So now that we've covered that topic in about as as much as we can mm-hmm. with where things currently stand societally and in our own right. uh, knowledge and, and work and progress, mm-hmm. uh, there are some other elements of the sort of regionalism movement that I think are cool and that I want to talk about. Obviously, there are the substitutions, right? Because you get like you go to an online book of shadows or you get a Llewellyn book or whatever right. that has spells in it right. and it's going to have specific ingredients lists, right? Mm-hmm. So something that's really encouraged in the sort of regionalism movement mm-hmm. is to, instead of just using whatever ingredients are in the spell, especially if you're going to have to like work really hard to find them, right? consider what job that ingredient is doing in the spell mm-hmm. and then find something in your area that's mm-hmm. local to you that does a similar job mm-hmm. and just use that instead. Yeah, exactly. I, that's kind of what I mentioned earlier in mm-hmm. the, the, the wildcraft. Yeah. The concept of wildcrafting or just getting to know the, you know, what are the, the natural, what is the natural flora and fauna of your particular area? Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of animals are, do you see the most of or, or birds or fl- what flowers and trees are, are most populous mm-hmm. in your area? And get to know those spirit beings, you know, mm-hmm. get to know the plant spirits, the tree spirits, the the rocks, you know, what kind, like, we have hagstones here mm-hmm. in, in Michigan. A Petoskey know, stones. A Petoskey stones. And there's a lot you can do with a Petoskey stone or a hagstone beyond just what the the basic stuff is. But you have to, to know what those things are and kind of follow your intuition on how you want to use it. So, and I have two recommendations for figuring out what you can substitute in. The first one is, yeah, talk to the various spirit beings associated. Mm-hmm. If you don't vibe with that, if yep. you either you follow a practice where you don't, you're not an animist, so you don't believe they have individual spirits, or you just, you just don't have a good spirit phone, so you have a hard time communicating with them or whatever. The other thing that I like to do personally is to get sciencey in it. 
and look up the physical properties mm -hmm. of the plant or the stone or whatever the, the element is. Mm -hmm. If you want to work with a particular river or lake or whatever that's local to your area, mm -hmm. um, you can do all that kind of stuff too. Mountains mm -hmm. in your area. Look up the physical properties of those things and what they do and what they're used for in practical applications. And you can sort of extrapolate the magical functions mm -hmm. of, of those plants and stones and things from their physical properties as well. So I think this works much better if you're more of a suburbanite mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, live even further out. Rural. rural. Yeah. But growing up where I grew up in Washington, D.C., like well, my flora and fauna, none of it actually came from there. No. Right? It's all shipped in from other countries. Like the biggest tree thing in D.C. is the Japanese cherry, cherry blossoms. blossoms yep. And they're everywhere, yeah, right? But and so, you know, nothing, as far as I know, not much is from the original surrounding area. But I'll, I think although it's not like from the native ecology, mm -hmm. it's still part of your environment living there. And let's, right. let's put it this way, as far as like the, the cherry blossoms and the cherry mm -hmm. trees, they've been there long enough to establish their their presence yeah. there, right? This is the complicated colonizer stuff. Where like part. we brought a bunch of shit with us, right? And it's now been here for several hundred yeah. years, and it's become right. part of that local ecology, mm -hmm. yeah. you know. So like, although that was donated by it was value, yeah. yeah. it was a gift. <laughs> well, it was a gift from it was a right. gift from the emperor of Japan. <laughs> yes, uh, and it's a very nice gift that has now a lot of associations mm -hmm. and traditions and stuff in DC. Right. There are a lot of traditions about the cherry trees in exactly. DC. Yeah. So you could absolutely extrapolate magical practices from the traditions they now have mm -hmm. in DC about the cherry blossoms. Right. Mm -hmm. And the fact that like, you know the history of them, you know that they were a gift from the emperor of Japan, that would, I assume, color your impressions of what the functions of that cherry blossom mm -hmm. is, right? So like, right. you might, associate cherry blossom trees with gratitude or with gift giving or mm -hmm. exchanges in general, bargaining, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Like kudzu mm -hmm. in the South. Oh my God. The plant kudzu. that ate the South. Yeah. Yes. The plant that that's ate an the an, South. That's, that's an, an Nancy Reagan. That's an invasive. <laughs> that's an invasive plant. plant. Yeah. But it has um, now become part of, of the Southern ecology. Of that ecology. Yeah. An unavoidable part. Much to their, much to their dismay. Ecology. The fact that it wasn't an original plant to the area doesn't mean it doesn't have a regional magical use. It just means that that's part of its use, right? right? You, so like how you use kudzu in the South, where it's the plant that ate the South, right. and it consumes everything it comes in contact with it, is very different from the context of how you might use kudzu in its natural environment where it's much more under control. Right. Yeah, if you want something, if you want something to grow, and expand <laughs> and, take, and over. take over. Kudzu is your if you're in the, the south. Yeah, if you're yeah, in the south, south yeah. that could be your one of your. But if allies, you're in the north, but if you're in the north or the Midwest, mm -hmm. it might be something more like mint, which is more oh, more likely goodness. to be overgrowing your yard. Mint or lemon balm uh -huh. or any of those those plants right. that are are just you know considered an invasive weed. Mm -hmm but also have many magical as well as health benefits and uh, they smell pretty in mm -hmm. regard. Now, Elle, one of the things you said in on there as well was old buildings, monuments, and parks. Most of the monuments that are in D.C. I would not want to put much into because they're built to white men who did really shitty things most of the time. 
Um, (laughs) They're the monuments we're debating whether we should take down. Right. Diana Rachel wrote a book on urban magic and how to connect with the local spirits of city streets and Mm -hmm. blocks and the the city spirit itself. Mm -hmm. The great, you know, she gave me some advice on how to work with the spirit of our neighborhood, Mm -hmm. you know. And even, even in smaller contexts, asphalt. Mm-hmm. Like a broken piece of asphalt from your driveway mm-hmm. has value as a magical absolutely. tool. It's absolutely. And I, I, I think if I'm understanding correctly, you know, the idea of regionalism or, or doing practicing magic with the spirits and the elements and the things of your area, mm-hmm. it means taking the focus off the grander scale. Yeah. And bringing it to where you're at. Do magic with what you have. It's yeah. Do magic with what you have, and it kind of reminds me of shop uh, shopping local. <laughs> kind of it's yeah. Kind of that, it's that vibe of shopping local, buying your food and and veg when it's in mm-hmm. season. You know, it's that same vibe. Yeah. To me. Yeah. Is it is kind of practice local. <laughs> Except that I doesn't think- mean that has to be the only thing you do. No. Except that I think there's there's a reverse classism to regionalism. There is. Cause like a lot of a lot of the the universal ingredients and components and tools and mm-hmm. practices can can be quite expensive to engage with. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't grow in your area, good luck getting a hold of X, Y, or Z. Right? right. Whereas regionalism is very much like what's growing in your yard. Yep. Use that. What can you get for free or super cheap at the Dollar Tree? Like right. regionalism is a very a very anti-elitism mm-hmm. philosophy. Like if you don't have something, you don't need it. I think it also like, you know, as Carr was saying, you know, we don't necessarily have or at least at this point we haven't lived here long enough to find out mm-hmm. if there are, you know, local legends or local lore mm-hmm. of local traditions. Yeah of things that people folk do, lo- local folkways of our specific area. If you live in a place that does have folkways that you know of, wherever you happen to be, there's probably something somewhere that you can learn about. I think every fucking place on earth has some kind of local superstition. Oh, yeah. There will be some kind of bridge in your town that's mm-hmm. supposed to be haunted, or there will be a lover's lane, or there will be like there will be something in your general area mm-hmm. that people don't talk about often or necessarily in public, but the like the people who've been here for twenty years know you don't go into that particular bit of the woods or whatever. And I think that's part of regionalism too, is getting to know what is your local lore, especially mm-hmm. if you didn't grow up there. Find the grannies. Find the grannies. As I was looking through like interesting things about Kalamazoo that Mm -hmm. could be quote-unquote magically inspired in some way or another. I ran across a place called Cooper's Glen, Uh which was the home of James Fenimore Cooper, who wrote Last of the Mohicans, Uh along with a lot of other books. Right. Including, like, 70. But that's like a lot of But that's the one people know. Right, yeah. But he wrote one called Oak Pathways. Okay. And it is Kalamazoo in the 1800s and it's actually the story of a beekeeper in Kalamazoo in the 1800s and so I thought that would be interesting for me to like go to the library and pick up and read because it's going to be full of old Kalamazoo history 
And bees. And bees. And you make mead. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's a thing where, like, I, I think I'd like to go visit exactly, Cooper's yeah. Glen. Mm-hmm. Oddly enough, I also found out that James Fenimore Cooper apparently is well-liked in multiple areas because we have a thing here called Cooper's Glen, but there's also a town in New York where he hails from called Cooperstown, huh. which is where the Baseball Hall of Fame is. Huh. Is in Cooperstown. It's a town of 2,000. Yeah. I mean, it's a tiny hamlet, but they have all of their stuff about Cooper there, which huh. I don't think he was necessarily a great guy, especially if you read less than what he can Right, right. Um, and he tended to convert all the Indians in all of his novels. Right. But it was just interesting to know that, like, that's something I didn't, I had no idea about yeah, Kalamazoo, the, right? Yeah, yeah. Go to the library. Your, your library probably has a local history section. Yep. And some librarian mm-hmm. who would fucking love, love to, tell to you walk you through it. Yeah. Exactly. Find out what the local superstitions are. Because yeah. the local superstitions are the local magic. Yeah. In the world that is not pagan or, or magical, superstitions are just these strange little quirks yeah. and things, you know. And it's, uh, and a lot of the times it is going to be stuff that people don't think of as magic. Yeah, they don't think of it as magic. They think of it as a superstition. And yet it is. And they've is, never questioned why they do it. Yeah, they but they just do it. So if I, you know, yeah, go to the local library. Mm-hmm. Talk to your librarians, the older ones, because yeah. they'll, they'll probably know. And, and uh, they've been there for 20 years, desperate for someone to ask them. Exactly. <laughs> Find out. Be a sleuth. Mm-hmm. Find out what your local superstitions are. What we've discovered is, for Rhiannon's comment about buying local tends to be, be very more expensive yeah. is that we found out that farmers markets are really the way to go yeah. because the price tends to, it doesn't have that markup that a grocery puts on it mm-hmm. um, because you're somewhat buying directly from the farmer, although they do have to pay for booth they pay for the booth yeah. But like if you go late in a day on a farmer's market, they don't want to bring their shit home again. They'll sell it to you for super fucking cheap. Yeah. Although we we tend to go early because we want then the you best get the pick. best pick. Yeah, yeah. Of, of the stuff, you have so. to go to the farmers market twice. You go early in the day to get the best <laughs> stuff, and you go late in the day to get the good deals. <laughs> right. Okay. So and and Kalamazoo, for whatever reason, seems to have picked up this whole local thing yeah. in quite a big way. I mean, there's a lot of stores downtown yeah, that, that are, are very, very much mom and this pop. Is mom and pop local. You'll things. never find another one. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing you can do if you don't have an established farmer's market in your area or if it's difficult to get to or if it's for some reason more expensive is that sometimes you can drive around and find, especially if you live in a more rural area or you can get to one pretty easily, you can drive around and a lot of places will have just like a little stand. stall yeah. yeah, just to stand by the side of the road or in their own driveway or whatever, where sometimes they're not even like... It's there, on the honor system. Yeah, it's the honor. There won't be anyone even standing there. They'll just be like, a bucket, honor system, $5 for five apples. <laughs> and you're just expected to put your money in and get your apples. In which case, I say, always honor the honor system. Yep. Uh, otherwise, you'll fuck it up for everybody. But sometimes you can even do that. And that's great. I love doing that. I think the other thing you can do, in addition to find out finding out about your local superstitions, is reading your, your local history. Mm-hmm. Because uh, like, like it'll be hidden about, in there. It'll be hidden. It'll be hidden in there about the, the local history or your state history. Mm-hmm. Or just look, talk to your relatives and mm-hmm. find out, think back, what were the superstitions in, that you, you, know, had, that right. you had yeah. growing up? Join our tiger Amanda and relax with the salts of wonderful body co. These soaks and scrubs inspired by popular books and characters are designed to delight multiple senses with fragrant scents and sparkling mica. 
You can also find rollerball fragrances and hair oils with dozens of options available. You're sure to find something you'll like in the wonderful Body Co. collection. This week, Oda is recommending the Tea Time Fragrance Roller. Scented with spiced chai tea, sea salt, pine, jasmine, and amber. Find Wonderful Body Co. online at wonderfulbodyco.com or go directly to the shop at etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash wonderfulbodyco. Hail Dictinus. More fire. More fire. So one other thing I wanted to mention, the wheel of the year, mm -hmm. very generalized sort of seasonal right. progression. Mm -hmm. is not relevant in a lot of places. No, it's not. And in fact, it's not even relevant in a lot of places like in North America. <laughs> no, it's really not because it was based on, um, basically on British, you know, and Celtic in, you know, the, the United Kingdom's right. but, system of but even then, farming. But even then, like there's so much <laughs> variation in the different parts of the United Kingdom. So like mm -hmm. I've seen there's a big movement for making regional religious calendars mm -hmm. like uh there's someone who's doing work on making a florida calendar that's based entirely around hurricane season that makes sense <laughs> well i mean think about it. we've talked about this before in bulk happens in it's supposed to be the the, right, start, the dawning the dawn you know the the light is returning kind of the beginning we're moving towards spring but for us it's that's, still it's frozen still, it's still winter it's all the frozen all the practices cold. for in bulk and stuff are like plant a seed i'm like where? <laughs> Everything's still frozen. I can't dig in the earth yet. Yeah, we we don't really we don't really get that kind of thing until like you know June. late May. May, yeah, at the earliest. Yeah, maybe at best. You know, for the summer solstice. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> and we've already had snow here. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. Twice. Yeah. No, three times. Three Five. times. <laughs> Too many times. Yeah. So so yeah so really the wheel of the of the year calendar doesn't always fit. No, where it's you're at. it's not. It's useful for a very specific environment. Uh -huh. And it, although we have tried to generalize it to yeah. everybody, yeah, it's ju it just everybody on the northern hemisphere. Yeah, it just doesn't. Well, the southern hemisphere has their thing, but like reverse, yeah, reverse, just reverse it, it right. But like again, that's fucking useless. Like just like Australia is a whole ass continent. I know. <laughs> but really? but but do they have like harsh winters in Australia? I have no idea. If not, does the Yule season make any sense to them? They you know, they barbecue. Right? Like, <laughs> so like it's just a bad idea, I think, to generalize religious calendars. I understand why we've generalized the regular calendar mm -hmm. so we can all be on the same date. I but think part of it is there's a, there's a unity, I suppose, to having yeah. because if you if everybody has their own calendar, then nobody knows what the fuck is going on. But but that but that's why I'm saying like we have the the secular calendar that everyone has to use, but it doesn't make us it really doesn't make as much sense for the religious calendar because especially when it's based on seasons and mm -hmm. things because the seasons are so different in different places. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, I, Georgia, if it snows, it's a state event. Yeah. So I think I, I like the idea of regional religious calendars, and I'm very excited about the work this person is. The like I said, I found this one person on Tumblr somewhere who was working on a Florida religious calendar that's based around hurricane season, and and they actually they talked a lot about how you know we name the hurricanes. Yeah. We apparently in Florida there's a real tendency to talk about them like they're people who yes. are going to come and just personally wreck your house. Yes, that's true. That's how we felt about Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> fucking Andrew. Um, <laughs> there's a deification almost of 
yeah, of hurricanes. At least of a short term. Yeah, like a like a like a temporary. They, they the, get, the, the hurricane is a temporary god yes, of they Florida. Take, they they take or whichever area it happens to be hitting because mm -hmm. it can hit a swamp. Well, yeah, but um, but yeah, it does. If when you think about it, it does take on a personality. They talk about it uh, in terms of of strength and mm -hmm. and whether it's you know gonna be destructive or. Yeah or whatever, you know, yeah, like, you start, you do start to kind of anthropomorphize. Mm -hmm. Which, and I think for, for magical people, mm -hmm. that, that makes perfect sense. That, that's, that's a very just animist perspective. It is a very is, animist perspective. This yeah. storm is alive and wants to hurt you. And hey, if we're going to name it. Uh-huh, yeah. You, you <laughs> put up wards and protections on your house with storm shutters and shit, and you, mm -hmm. Maybe you pray a little that the storm doesn't destroy your house. Right. Please, you know. <laughs> go that way. Whatever your name is at the time, go this way. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. And it's something that only really makes sense if you're in an area that, that experiences, experiences hurricanes. That. Yeah, yeah. We get tornadoes here, but we don't name them. We don't name blizzards either. Yeah, so like, it's a very we different... Do, now. do we? Do we? Yeah. We're yeah. going to start doing that? Uh, yeah, they've started naming uh, cold fronts and blizzards and all that kind of stuff, thanks to the Weather Channel. Well, like Herman, George, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like yeah. with hurricanes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. interesting. So Blizz we may start to see that develop here over the next couple of decades. <laughs> so, so just so you know, it does snow in Australia in the winter, but in the south of Australia, down near Canberra, oh. um, in the north of Australia, Farther from the equator, right? Again. Yeah, yeah. The closer they get to the Antarctic. I got gotcha. you. The colder the it gets, gets yeah. yeah. But their low is like 32 at basically sea level. And then as you go up a mountain, you'll get, wow. like, that's the the coldest it'll get. I uh, wish. <laughs> I wish that right now was the coldest it would get. Right? <laughs> so Rochala and and Elle are talking about something. So Rochala says, well, there's a, about the... The calendars. Mm -hmm. Rochelle says, well, there's a desire to have common celebrations, even if the method of celebration varies. It gives the larger community a sense of unity and shared experience, so why not do both? Elle says, take the holiday, put your own spin on it. In bulk is still full winter where I live, but I use it to kind of look forward to the fact that, yes, spring will come again eventually. That's kind of what I do. Yeah, and I, I get that, but at the same time, like, in bulk means nothing to me. Because it's not spring. It's not going to be spring for several more months. <laughs> it's the dead of winter. I'm not even thinking about spring around yeah. in bulk. So, like, it's just a meaningless word on the calendar Ostara to me. is spring. <laughs> so, I, th I mean, I obviously people are going to keep using the wheel of the year. It's in oh, yeah. It's embedded in culture at this point. But I do think it's just sort of like, it doesn't vibe for me. <laughs> Hell said Ostar is the one I have a hard time with because... It's supposed to be spring proper, but it's still cold here. Yeah, it's yeah. like, like they, these these holidays are just. That's because we, remember when we did our hol our wheel of the year series twice, yeah. and every time we were in a spring one, I was like, this means nothing. But that's so the the calendar, the local calendars thing are are another uh, regionalism discussion. But I think that's it. I think a lot of it is uh, you'll see it a lot in terms of witchcraft, but I do think it also applies to. Mm -hmm just um, especially reconstructing uh, right. practices. Like, we're never going to worship in the same way, like, as heathens. No. Who live in North America and not Scandinavia. It doesn't even make sense for us to try to worship in exactly the same way that they did in Iceland. 
mm-hmm. because our environment is completely different. Or that they, or that they now that do. they now do again, again in Iceland. In yeah. Iceland, it, it doesn't make sense for us to try to perfectly replicate that here because we have a different environment. We have completely different seasons. We have different plants and animals, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, we could import all that stuff directly from Iceland, but it's gonna make less sense than using the stuff we have here. And I think that's hard for reconstructionists to sort of grapple with mm-hmm. because there's a desire, especially when you're working with limited material already, mm-hmm. to use that material as faithfully as possible. Yeah. But sometimes that's not the, the, the most functional religious move to make, I yeah. think. Yeah. And as uh, Ella is saying, gotta get creative. Yeah. Also, Eden Flora points out, plus with global warming, our seasons are changing every year and becoming less predictable. That is true. That's right. right. Like I said, I'm not going to tell anyone that they can't, you know, not to to have a a global view if that that is what you desire or if everybody... If you're a soft polytheist, vibe with that, whatever. Yeah, vibe with it. That's that's very cool. I, I just think it's... Why not expand your horizons a little bit? By narrowing your horizons. By narrowing your horizons. By, by going, you know, looking closer to home. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is antithesize. <laughs> <laughs> do a, why not do both? You know, why, why not get to know your, your local flora and fauna, your local deities, or, you know, mm-hmm. your local spirits. Figure out how to work with them. Well, and this is why I'm saying, like, as a heathen, I'm not going to stop worshiping the Norse gods. Right. I'm just going to do it in a local context. Right. Because the heathens I'm descended from, the heathens I'm inspired by, that I'm trying to reconstruct the practices of, mm-hmm. were doing shit where they lived. Yeah. It was all based on their environment. Yeah. And it would have been different if, if they lived in different parts. Exactly. And it was different. Yeah. In different parts of, like, Iceland heathenry and Greenland heathenry and Danish heathenry were different heathenries. Yeah. So it doesn't make any sense for us to be like, no, we must reconstruct a perfect pan-heathen religious framework. Because that never existed. No, I don't have an Icelandic heathenry. I have a Kazoo, Michigan heathenry. <laughs> yep. Sorry. <laughs> Currently. Yep. I just really also like, as far as witchcraft goes, mm-hmm. I like the, the concept of working with my local yeah. flora and, and fauna. And All right. So <laughs> that's it for this episode of Three Pagans and a Cat. You can find us on all the appropriate social media platforms. You can find the podcast on just about every podcast platform that's out there. If we're not on it, it's not worth being on. (laughs) (laughs) I can't wait to get an email from some podcast. What the fuck? Thank you all for your support over this uh, pandemic year and a half or yeah, three years. Two years now, God. 412 God. years that it's been. Our continuing pandemic. Yes. Um, and we love you all and we'll talk to you again next week. Hopefully all three of us. Yes. Yes. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs> that was very belated. Goodbye. Ooh, nice. We got cloth.